Okay, well, I said I would come back to uh, present um, my brother, and, and normally when pastors say that I want to present my brother, it's usually in Christ, but I'm actually going to present my brother by blood and also uh, in Christ. Uh, many of you know that we have a program that we have been uh, running at our church here uh, that met this week. It's called Word Partners, and the way that this works, uh, this is something that um, Shortly after I transitioned into my role here, one of the things that I most needed and desired was to dive into Scripture. When I looked at my role and knowing that what I would be called to would be to preach the Word, that was where I wanted to put my effort in, in developing and, and to growing. Um, and I was aware of this program that was uh, I had seen at my home church in Brazil that had gone and and presented and trained pastors, thousands of pastors, and the whole content is that you study the Word of God. And what you get together is you spend two or three days diving into one book of the Bible, seeing the whole book, using simple principles, but seeing how they work. And the people that do this are the church leaders and, and gathering. And so what we started two years ago was a partnership with my home church in Brazil, with my church in South Jersey that was the church that sent my parents to Brazil over uh, 30 years ago, and then with our church here. And so it was all churches that I had interned at or worked at before, and, and God allowed us to bring this partnership together so that the people that sent my parents down, then their son could come back, not me, but my brother and, and others, and go through this training and so we've had about 20 different pastors or church leaders, the same group that have gotten together. This was our fourth time. We just went through First and Second Samuel, and every time has been an immense blessing. And, and there's times where I, I, I recognize that there is much training out there that is very good and, and very useful in, in thinking through, okay, here's different strategies but sometimes we need to go back to the basics and, and where does God say blessing is going to come from? And it's the simple things. It's being faithful to his word. What does his word say? How do we preach that faithfully? And this program has been a, a huge blessing to myself. So Billy and I were there as, along with uh, several of our deacons who participated in this um, and then the other churches. Um, and I don't know what this is, what's going to happen in the future. This is a program that I would love to see our church continue to support, not only here, but this might be ways in which we come alongside Dan. As Dan, one of his prayer requests was to prepare people in their church to take on that leadership. This would be the type of thing that we could do there or, or other places in the world. So we're excited about that. Um, my brother David's going to come up. He's going to spend a brief time explaining a little bit more about this program and then we're going to jump into the word. He's much braver than I am because he just spent two days teaching in depth First and Second Samuel to all these guys. And so now he has much more informed critics in the audience, but he's still going to preach from First and Second Samuel. I would have gone to something that no one knew about, but he's, he's a brave guy. But uh, David, um, thank you for being here and bringing the word to us. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be back here. Uh, it's wonderful to see all God has done during this past 
a year uh, since I was here last. Um, my family was with me when we came up on vacation in June last year. Um, and then after that, it was back here in October. Uh, this has been a really, really special week. Uh, great to, every time I'm back here, get to know more people. Uh, great to spend time with Steve and Hannah and the kids. Um, but a wonderful time in God's Word. And what a wonderful time we did have this week at the Word Partners uh, workshop. Uh, great hospitality, great food. The food just keeps getting better, you know? So I'm, I can't wait for the next two years and see what we're going to have at the end of that. Um, and just great times in God's Word. What I'd like to share is just um, that you would know a little bit about what God is doing around the world and this partnership, what this is a part of. We were studying this week in 1 Samuel, and one of the descriptions of the period of time before David comes on the scene, right at the beginning of Samuel's call to ministry, and it said the word of God was rare. And I think if we look around us, even here in the States, but as I look around the world and around Brazil, as we look at churches many times, Many times that could describe uh, believers, churches. The word of God was rare. It is rarely studied by Christians. It is rarely preached from the pulpit. It rarely leads the church and ministry. Many pastors have laid aside the Bible in their lives and ministry. But without the, the Bible, without the word, the church dies of thirst because it's God's word that gives life to his people and his church. I want you to imagine what a movement of God's word would look like. What if the pure crystal water of God's word flowed untainted from every pulpit? What if every believer drank deeply from the word every day and then went on to share it with others? Maybe Husbands and wives together, parents and children, with neighbors, friends, colleagues. We would see a movement of God's word flowing powerfully from every church, every pulpit, every Christian to the nations. That's the vision that our church has committed to, and we've set up a mission, um, a ministry called Preach the Word, Pregue a Palavra in Portuguese. Um, to cooperate and see, and just to join in the movement, not of our movement, but the movement that God is doing, has been doing since uh, the beginning of the church. We see this already in Acts of the Apostles, that he is doing around the world. But it's not something we can do. It's God's work through his spirit, using his people, proclaiming his word. It begins with pastors. Pastors need to be awakened to renew their commitment to hear the word of God for themselves and preach it and place it at the center of their ministries. Uh, so how do we try to help them do this? So like Stephen said, um, we offer a course in expository preaching. We meet with them, uh, study the word of God, but we just get a group of pastors, a small group of pastors around the table, diving deeply into God's word so that they will be once again transformed by it. Because lots of, lots of us pastors, we just use the Bible as a, a toolkit, something that we can use and look for something nice to say on Sundays. 
And we forget that it's God's word that needs to start transforming our hearts first. And then take that to God's people and even transform others. Um, Our course that we offer around Brazil and beyond is free so that we can reach needy pastors. Uh, It is our trainers, our volunteer trainers who who love God's word and want to train others. And what does this look like? I have a friend, his name is Jair. Uh, He lives in northeastern Brazil in the state of Bahia uh, in a small city called Valença. And he has a small church on the outskirts, a very poor area of that town. Uh, he, he was a neoliberal pastor. Uh, basically, anything that worked was game, and he would bring into the church. Anything that would cause his church to grow, regardless of sound teaching. He started going through one of these workshops a number of years ago, and God's, God worked through his word to convict him deeply of the need to return to Scripture as the focal point of his ministry. It took him five years to turn the church around and back to the word of God. During that time, many people didn't like it and left. But over time, the church has regrown to over 200 people, but this time with real, spiritual, biblical life. I visited there a few years ago, and you can just feel the church pulsating with with life uh, uh, and just joy in God's word in all areas. Um, The church is vibrant with a clear witness to the community. And now Pastor Jair, uh, he practically bleeds the Bible, you know, um, every time you talk to him. And he is now mentoring other pastors in the region and not just around him, but all over northeast Brazil. He is training pastors who are transforming their churches by God's word. This is happening all over Brazil. We started with 12 pastors back in 2008, and this semester we have about 73 groups meeting all over Brazil. God has opened doors even for the Brazilian church to go beyond its borders. Um, We have about eight groups in other countries, including Venezuela, uh, Angola, Mozambique, Portugal, and we did some work in Cuba as well. When I was in Mozambique, and uh, that's Southeast Africa, um, meeting with a group there, we just started working in Jonah like we did here, and Pastor Lorenzo was a seminary professor, and he was part of the training. He actually taught um, how to study the Bible at seminary, but at the end of the training, he came and said, you know what, as much as I've been teaching this, I've just gotten tired of copying sermons from other guys and reading books on preaching and wondering, why doesn't God ever speak to me? Does does the Holy Spirit just talk to the books, the people who wrote these commentaries? He wanted to know how to develop his own sermons of what God was saying through his word. And then he said, but now I can't complain anymore because God has answered my prayer Now I know that it is my responsibility to apply what I have learned to open God's word, hear from God through his word, and proclaim it faithfully to the church. Like I said, what God is doing is far beyond us, and um, 
What we have been praying and looking for is to develop relationships and partnerships, like the relationship that we have here um, at Hillside and with South Jersey, just growing together in God's word and praying together. What can God do to take this beyond, take his word to others and encourage men and their churches in the scripture to grow in God's word? Um, I dream of taking some of the guys maybe from our group here, uh, going overseas to some place and training together, uh, praying and see what God will do from this church to around the world because it has been so awesome to see the life that is flowing in this church from God's word and the faithful preaching. So be praying for us uh, with lots of challenges and lots of wonderful things that the Lord is doing. I'd like to pray once more, and then we will dive into 1 Samuel chapter 21. Lord, I do thank you for the wonderful fellowship we've had these days here. Lord, I, w- I praise you because your word is powerful. In it, you show us your son, Jesus Christ. You transform our lives, our churches, and through us, through your church, bring the light of your gospel to the lost. Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would um, open our hearts, open our minds, that we would learn to find refuge in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We will be doing all, working through all of chapter 21 and into chapter 22 up till verse 5. So to 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 22, 5. Last year when I came up for the Word Partners training, I think it was October of last year, uh, our church in Brazil was doing well by God's grace. Um, we had, we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we're coming out of our pastoral transition where our senior pastor and founding pastor had stepped down, retired after 40 years. Um, and two colleagues and I had become lead pastors. And right then, the pandemic had hit. Uh, we stopped gathering as a, as a church. Everything went online uh, for a long time. And then we had just coming back, and we were returning to life as normal. And as we were thinking through what would be the next steps in the future of the church now uh, in a new phase, uh, we got together as leaders, as pastors, and, and trying to just pray and think through and plan what were the biblical, where was God leading us through his word to the future, the next steps for us as a church? We spent hours and hours working and dreaming, praying, thinking, and, and setting up a plan and, and vision for the next steps for our church. Um, we were, I was very excited about what God was doing. I was excited about uh, things we could do for the, for the future. And so we sat down with some key leaders and just share with them uh, what God was doing and was placing on our hearts. On the second or third meeting with these leaders, um, we finished and 
one of the men started questioning some things for, of our planning. And his response absolutely floored me. Um, there were accusations of pride. There were accusations of all sorts of things. And basically taking all that we had done and throwing it into the trash can. I was totally devastated. Um, it was one of the lowest points of my ministry, if not the lowest. Um, tears, um, a bit of despair, and a few days later I was up here. And during that time, there was that tension and desperate need to find a place to hide. Find a place where my heart would feel safe. Have you ever been in a place like that? Have you ever felt that? I think we all have. Um, thankfully, God used the time up here in a wonderful way. Again, just in God's word and sharing um, with more experienced pastors and, uh, and was greatly encouraged. But there are times when we are desperate for somewhere to turn. When we come to chapter 21, David has come to that point in his life. Up till now, his rise has been uh, um, like a meteor. Uh, he's, he's, just, he's just on fire. Every, he has come, he is a celebrity in Israel. Um, if you have not studied 1 Samuel recently, uh, David was anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. He would replace the current king, King Saul, who had been rejected by, uh, by God. David bursts into history, into the story, when he faces the terrifying giant Goliath with only a strip of leather and a few stones. He is now promoted to captain of the king's guard, a commander beloved by the troops, feared by his enemies. He gets to marry the princess. And even the crown prince, Jonathan, has given up his claim to the throne in his favor. What was lacking? He only had to wait his turn to ascend to the throne. David is living the dream. Everything is going well. But something changed. King Saul becomes jealous of David and tries to kill him three times. You know, grabbing a, a spear and even trying to pin him against the wall. And David ducks out of the way as he's playing his harp for King Saul. Jonathan, the prince, tries to intervene, but Saul almost kills him. With that, David has to flee, forced to leave behind his wife, his home, his job, his honor, to live as Israel's most wanted. Suddenly, the dream has turned into a nightmare. What went wrong? God had promised David he would be king. And now what would become of him? The throne never appeared further away. He can't even go home to Bethlehem. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Where could he be safe? And again, I ask you, have you ever felt like that? 
It had seemed like God was saying yes, yes, yes to everything. But suddenly you get a resounding no. And the carpet is pulled out from under you. Maybe everything was coming together for a key job opportunity or promotion. And suddenly it all fell flat. Maybe years in line for an adoption and then something blocks the whole process. Maybe it's a problem in marriage. Maybe a diagnosis to someone's health or your own health and suddenly floors you. Problems with children. We react in these situations with insecurity, fear, worry, confusion. What is going on in my life? What went wrong? Everything was great. We're going to walk alongside David in this critical moment of his life and learn some precious lessons with him. And um, the big idea here, and it's on your handout, is that in times of distress, many things may seem safe. But only in the Lord will we truly find refuge. Please follow with me as we look at three different scenes in this story. And as we look through it, I want you to watch where David tries to hide. Let's look at the first scene. Uh, Read with me chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 21, 1 through 9. So David is fleeing from Saul. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, "Then Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. In the first scene, David hides behind lies and weapons but it is the Lord who sustains him. David flees. His first stop is the town of Nob. Nob was less than two miles from Gibeah, the capital city. It was very close by. That's where the tabernacle was at this point. And the priest, Ahimelech, uh, comes out trembling to meet David. 
because he sees that something is wrong. David is alone, and, and it's obviously, he, David looks like a fugitive. Now, you need to remember at this point, David is a celebrity. He's a general. He's uh, married to the princess. Generals, celebrities, governors don't move, go around by themselves. They don't show up on your doorstep knocking. They always come with an entourage, right? They're moving around. They've got their assistants. They've got their adjutants or whatever they need. They've got everybody, and they come, and everything is prepared before them. David is running. He's probably sweaty. He, he's, he's disheveled. He, he, and he, he's knocking on the door. Somebody, I need some help. And Ahimelech, maybe knowing a little bit more what's going on behind the scenes, he is trembling in fear because something is clearly wrong. What's going on? Why are you alone? So David hides behind lies. He desperately needs help. He desperately needs food. And to get it, he lies, saying he's on a secret mission from Saul. And then he's about to meet his soldiers, oh, oh, just over the hill at such and such a place. It's a flat-out lie. And this will be very costly the next chapter. Um, there's even in verse 7, it says that there was one of Saul's servants, Doeg, was there watching him. And if you read further on to the rest of chapter 22, you will see that this will cost heavily. Um, and this whole town will be massacred because of Saul's evil, but also because of David's lies there and because they helped him. Have you ever noticed how easily we hide behind lies? Oh, I'm, I'm already on my way. You can count on me. I'll be there. E- even little lies of all sizes. We fear other people's opinions. What will they say or think of me? I, I can't really say what's going on in my heart. I'm afraid of other people seeing the struggles, my fears, my doubts, my anxiety. But we don't realize that lies destroy churches, marriages, families, friendships. And it only creates more loneliness. David also hides here behind weapons. He desperately needs a weapon. He didn't have time. He, he fled with nothing. And I always liked this part because he gets to carry Goliath's mighty sword. It kind of reminds me of Aragorn, you know? And if you could get Aragorn's sword, like, yeah, now nothing will stop me. Um, I was able to visit uh, when I was, um, went to our, our workshop in Portugal. I was visiting a church before that in uh, England. And I was able to stop quickly by the British Museum. And in there, they have um, some Canaanite swords from a little bit before this period. And they have a bunch of little swords. And then they have this massive sword. And it's, it could have been from one of Goliath's ancestors. Who knows? But I can just imagine David needing a sword. And, and that's the only one there is like, yes, I finally got this mega weapon. And I am safe. The problem is it's, it's quite ironic. Does David really need Goliath's sword? Turn back with me to chapter 17, verse 45. This is when David is confronting Goliath in his famous battle. 
1 Samuel 17, 45. Look what David says to the Philistine Goliath. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then he said, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Even before that, remember when he was presented to King Saul saying, I'll fight Goliath. What does Saul try to give him? His armor and his sword. And what does David do? This is not going to work. I haven't tested this. I'm not used to this. And how does he fight Goliath? With just a sling and a few stones. Why? Because the battle was the Lord's. That doesn't mean it's wrong for him to use a sword. But we start to wonder when he, his response when he gets the Goliath's sword and says, wow, there is none like it. Give it to me. David is hiding behind the wrong thing. Goliath's sword had been totally useless in his battle against David. Its only use in that battle was when David got it and cut off Goliath's head. Remember? Because David had the Lord by his side. But now in his despair, he needs to protect himself, and he tries to get the best sword available. True, it is the best. But it's not Goliath's sword that can protect you. It seems that David's faith is weakening. How quickly we also forget God's protections in the past and begin to trust in so many other things. We hide behind money, influential connections and networks, our personal charisma, our personal resourcefulness and determination. Nothing gets me down. Our human wisdom. We try power plays and manipulation We arm our mind with arguments and counter-arguments to confront the person who is humiliating us and making us feel despair. But if you notice in this first scene, as David is desperately finding, hiding behind lies and weapons and so many other things, the Lord is still sustaining him. God had not abandoned David He hadn't stopped taking care of him. God is his refuge. And even here, he is given bread from the presence, from the tabernacle. This was the bread that was placed um, on the table inside the tabernacle and was um, switched every day. And only the priests were allowed to have it. Ahimelech offers it to David as long as he and his men had been consecrated following a series of laws that God had um, given Israel when they were going to war. Jesus even confirms when he uh, quotes this passage in Matthew 12, 3, that God had allowed this bread to be used to feed his anointed. God was sustaining him, even when he's desperately finding, trying to find another hiding place. Where is David's refuge? Let's look at the second scene. Verses 10 through 15. Please follow in your Bible. 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. 
And all the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? This time, David hides behind enemies and insanity. But even here, it is the Lord who delivers him. We find a surprise in the text. David is already taking refuge in Goliath's sword, and now he's taking refuge in Goliath's hometown, Gath. And it's hard to understand or imagine what is going on in David's mind. Maybe his idea was to hide uh, in the last place Saul would look for him. At least the Philistines were stronger than Saul, but it's almost like he's deserting to the enemy. Well, if Saul is, doesn't want me, if Saul's trying to kill me, at least the Philistines will have me. But if David was thinking he would be accepted, he had another think coming. Everyone was still smarting at the humiliating defeat when he killed Goliath. If, it was, if this was in Brazil, I don't know if, how many of you are, like to follow the World Cup soccer. We are very excited that it's coming up uh, in a number of weeks. Now, uh, down in Brazil. Um, and, but one of the things that when we think about the World Cup, and even though Brazil has five World Cups, and I want, need to make sure that I, I say that here, right? Uh, <laughs> remember that. Every time we think about the World Cup, there is still a smarting wound, which is when eight years ago, Brazil lost to Germany 7-1. to one. Yeah. Every time I say that, if I say that in Brazil, I have to watch and duck behind the pulpit, you know? Uh, it's a smarting defeat. It, 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 that will never be wiped from Brazilian memory. And it's kind of like the Philistines here. David thinks, oh, they've probably forgotten that by now. And he comes in, and they're like, oh, that's the guy. He killed our Goliath, our champion. And he shows up here. Lock the gates. Take him to the king. They are dogging his path. They're around him, surrounding him. They're watching his every step. And it's frightening the level of, the number of details that the Philistines remember. Look at what they say. Um, they, they even recall the little, um, the, the little song that the Israelite women sang to David when he's coming back from the battlefield. You know, Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. They even think, look at verse 11, that David is the king of the land. Well, why do they think that? Well, he's the one that they've always seen leading Israel in all the battles for the past few years. 
And he always won. He must be the king. But when David hears these reminders of the victories that God has given him in the past, instead of these victories and remembering that he is God's anointed to be the king, instead of all this giving him courage, it says in verse 12, these words, he took these words to heart and he was much afraid. David is terrified. I'm trapped. There's no way out. Brothers and sisters, how many times are we tempted to just throw up everything and go and try to find refuge in the enemy? Many times when things go south, we're tempted to abandon the church, abandon the word of God, If God's going to treat me this way, I'm out of here. I've talked to couples who, maybe when a spouse has cheated the other, and so the second one goes out and also cheats the first, just to show how it feels. Abandoning running to find, well, I guess it doesn't work there. Things just go wrong. I thought God was going to help me. So I'm going to go find somewhere else. And people just leave and go to the worst places. What was going on in David's mind? I'm going to look at, um, turn to Psalm 56. We're going to be looking at two psalms uh, along the path here um, that were written, uh, among others, during this dark time in David's life. Um, Look how he reflects on what is happening in his life. Psalm 56, verses 5 through 7. Psalm 56, verses 5 through 7. Look how he describes what he's feeling in the midst of Gath. If you look up at uh, at the beginning of Psalm 56, you'll see that the introduction... um, says that he wrote this when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Verses 5 through 7. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. We'll come back to this later. But this is what is going on in David's mind. He has walked in to a den of venomous vipers. He's lost. He doesn't know where to run. Will God save him? It's not going to be easy escaping from Gath. Now that they've realized they've captured the great enemy champion. So what's David's solution? Verses 13 through 15. He pretends insanity. Can you imagine how humiliating that was? The future great king of Israel, a renowned warrior, and he's stumbling around town, dribbling saliva down his beard and drawing on the doors. Look how far he's fallen in fears. 
But God delivers him, um, even though we don't see God mentioned here. We see clearly that through Akish's response, he sees that the story doesn't add up. This can't be the great David. And even if it is, he's not much of a threat. Get him out of here. I've got plenty of madmen around. But David's despair has put the future of the kingdom at risk. If he had been killed, that was it. But even so, God delivers him. David escapes, but where can he go? Where will he be safe? Let's look at our final scene, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. David hides in strongholds, but it is the Lord who gives him direction. David goes back to Judah and to live in a cave. Um, and again, he's wondering, what will God do? Let's look again at what David is feeling at this moment. Um, go back to Psalm 142. We read it earlier in the service. Psalm 142, a psalm that David wrote when he was in the cave. We don't know if it was specifically this cave or not or another. Uh, but it really reflects what he was feeling. Look at the first verses. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord, Psalm 142.1. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. David pours out his complaint to the Lord. He sees there's traps around him. But God knows his way. But he still feels, still feels alone. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Isn't that the feeling many times in distress? Nobody cares. That is one of the... Um, one of the temptations that is so easy for us to fall in. I'm in a situation, I'm suffering, and I am totally alone. Nobody cares. And, and we start even becoming self-centered and, and talking to people, why don't they ask how I'm doing? And when people ask, I say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. And he's just kind of throwing it out there that people, so that people will prod, oh, really? Well, no, tell me, what's going on? And, and, we, and we, but if they don't, we're like, yeah, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And we repeat that and echo that in our mind time and time again. 
and we convince ourselves, I truly am alone. But this is where things start to change. David is no longer alone. His family joins him. They probably also felt threatened by Saul, and with good reason. They needed to escape. But then an unlikely band of brothers also forms around David. If you look back, uh, you see in verse 2, everyone who was in distress, people going through terrible problems, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. It seems like they were all victims to, of King Saul's unjust rule. Are they just fleeing from their problems? Possibly. But more importantly, they are fleeing to the Lord's anointed. They seek refuge with David. And the number is impressive, 400 men. These weren't the elite soldiers that David used to lead when he worked for King Saul. But now he commands a small army. A new people is gathering, the people of the king, those who seek him in their worst trials. And they find refuge with David. If you notice, David moves many times. He finally goes to the land of Moab, the land of his great-grandmother Ruth. And he's left He's left the land of Israel completely again. There he asked the king to take care of his parents, and that way they will be outside of Saul's grasp. But notice what David says. He shows what's going on in his heart. He says in verse 3, Till I know what God will do for me. He's waiting for God's direction in his life. He stays in a stronghold, safe, far from Saul, surrounded by a small army. And in verse 5, the answer finally comes. God sends a message through the prophet Gad, and God gives him direction. David must return to the land of Judah. He needs to stop hiding in foreign countries. He should leave the fortress in Moab, a safe place outside of Saul's reach, and go back to the desert within Israel's borders where there is little protection. God wants David to stay in Judah where Saul can catch him, where he can be easily betrayed, which will happen in the following chapters, in the desert, not in an enemy city. Friends, it, so many times, God wants us to stay, remain in the tension where we must wait on him. So many times, we are squirming. This is wrong. This situation is wrong. I need to get out of this. I feel like I'm just under all this pressure and I just need to, it needs to stop. And we seek any way that, to get out. And God calls David, no, I want you to stay here right now for a time. For as long as I will have you here. Until my work in your life is finished. No squirming. David will have to learn to trust in God as his refuge. Just as he trusted in him to kill Goliath. In times of distress, many things may seem safe. But only in the Lord will we truly find refuge. David learned some lessons during this period. Where did David seek refuge? His hiding place was lies, weapons, powerful people, strongholds. He tried everything. And he only found fear and despair. We as well, many times, in distress, people hide behind Substance abuse, alcohol, even food. Maybe it's our entertainment, social media. It's our cell phone. I, I, I think of just the day-to-day the -day when I'm coming home from, 
from church, coming home from work. It's been a heavy day. It's been a distressing day. And I just need to get away and I need to rest. And I get home and then my wife wants to talk about her day and all the problems she's had with the kids and all the troubles and the kids want attention and everything. And just, just stop. Let me, I, 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 I want to sit down and I want to watch something. And I want to I, I, I get a shower. I want to eat something. Just, just leave me alone. And I'm seeking refuge. And me and myself. And entertainment. And so many other things. I just need me space. Sometimes it's work. Long hours so that we don't have to deal with problems at home. Sometimes we seek refuge in our own self-righteousness and excuses. A list of all the things I've done right far beyond my failures a list of all the circumstances that were against me. It's not my fault. But David's refuge should have been in the Lord. And this was the great lesson that David learned during this time in his life. I want you to look back at what he wrote again during this period. Psalm 56. Please go back there again. Psalm 56. Look at verses 3 and 4. Again, when he was seized in Gath, look at the lessons he learned. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Jump down to verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your books? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? When I'm afraid and distress, God has not abandoned me. He's with me. Even my tears that I cry on my pillow that no one else sees, God has put in his bottle. He knows and values every one. How easy it is to forget that. When I am afraid, I find refuge in him. Turn again to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. Look what else David has learned during these trying times. Verses five, and seven, 5 through 7. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. The Lord is my hiding place. I am brought low, so I cry to the Lord. And isn't it interesting how he ends? The righteous will surround me. The righteous here ended up being a, a bit of a rabble that came and were with him in the, in the wilderness. But isn't it amazing how the Lord brings his people around us, his church. And we're a bit of a rabble ourselves, aren't we? 
all different ways of life, all different backgrounds, all different sins that God has redeemed us from. And together, the church comes around and we are once again reminded, I'm not alone. And don't be alone in the midst of the righteous. Because in our midst, this is the place where we can share, open our hearts, we can pray for one another, seek God's word and find refuge together in Christ. Nothing escaped God's plan or pattern. God is refining David's faith, deepening his character to be king. This is the pattern for many men of God. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Elijah, so many others went through similar times of, in their life. But greater still, this is the pattern of the great anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you've been studying the Gospel of John, and um, this week in the community group, we were looking at John 18 and 19 together um, from last Sunday. And there you see again, Jesus, the anointed king, he is going through betrayal, abandonment, injustice, persecution, torture, and death. But what is Jesus' response? He does not seek refuge in other things, in his own power that he had. His response is not desperately seeking escape, but he entrusts himself, as 1 Peter says, to him who judges justly. The path of the cross comes before the crown. Suffering evil, betrayal, cruelty, rejection, loneliness. Christ carried our sins on the cross that we might find deliverance, salvation in him. We are like those from all over Israel who go out to the desert to find the anointed one. We come and find refuge in our king. We identify with him in his suffering and we'll be raised with him when he comes in glory. This is a pattern not only of our king, but of his followers. What Jesus said to us, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus is our hiding place. He is our refuge. We trust in him, in his will, in the midst of distress. We must trust in God. He sustains us. He does not abandon us. He will deliver us as we follow him on the path of this world and carrying our cross until we await his return. In times of distress, Many things may seem safe, but only in the Lord will we truly find refuge. Father, I thank you for the joy that we find in Christ, the security, the refuge that we have in the Lord because we know that he is the true forever king who paid the penalty of our sins and defeated death at Calvary and in his resurrection we have new life and the promise of life everlasting may we not seek after empty hiding places but find refuge in you
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.